0: Director of Education and Training in Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Well, thank you so much, Crystal, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, The New Coronavirus, COVID-19, Emerging Guidelines for People Living and Coping with Cancer, and I also would like to uh, acknowledge that we're doing this program today on June 15, 2020, so this is information that's current as of today. And um, we uh, are delighted to have so many of you on the call today. Uh, Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And uh, we also have an extraordinary faculty and speakers on today's program. Today's program is made possible by EG Sanko, Inc., the Friends of Cancer Care, the Diana Napoli Fund, and the generous time and expertise of our wonderful faculty. And uh, I just want to acknowledge that we have over 300 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also happen to have a number of people from international countries, from New Zealand, Norway, Romania, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. It's a credit to credit each of you that you have chosen to spend this next hour with us. We have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grawler. He's Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. Dr. Grawler will begin presenting an overview of COVID-19 for people living and coping with cancer, how to currently protect yourself and loved ones from COVID-19, social distancing, masks, and gloves. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr.
2: Grawler.
3: Well, hello, and thank you so much, Carolyn. I am uh, Richard Grawler, a medical oncologist, as Carolyn mentioned, at the Albert Einstein Cancer Center in New York. I have the pleasure of starting off this program, which will discuss many aspects of the COVID-19 or coronavirus infection, with a special focus on caring for those with cancer while this illness is in our community. We are fortunate to have a very knowledgeable and helpful panel on the call today, and I really look forward to their presentations. We hear so much on the news today about the COVID-19 pandemic, and I'm afraid that we will have to be dealing with these issues for many weeks and months to come. This is no time to let one's guard down and feel that enough is enough. Dr. Fleischman will address aspects about dealing with the cautions that are so important at this time. There will be crucial help coming, and Dr. Wong will discuss this and his presentation a little later in the program. So let's all continue to be very careful. Just for clarification, you may hear three terms discussed, coronavirus, COVID-19, and CARS-CoV-2. The name of the illness is COVID-19. The CO part of that is for coronavirus, and the DI stands for virus, while the disease stands for disease. And, of course, 19 is the year when this was first identified, 2019. The actual virus itself that causes the problem is somewhat confusingly named SARS-CoV-2, which means that this is related to, but not identical, to the virus causing SARS disease from 17 years ago. When you get a test to see if you have COVID-19 it tests for that specific virus, SARS-CoV-19 itself. As you may be aware, there are two types of testing. The first is diagnostic to see if one has the virus right now, the so-called swab, usually a nasal swab. The second is a blood test to see if one has developed antibodies from recent infection with the virus. This blood test might also imply the likelihood of some degree of immunity for that individual. There are several versions of both of these types of tests and some differences in the speed of getting results as well as the accuracy. It is still being worked out from the antibody blood test concerning who has immunity and how long that uh, immunity may last. It appears that some people can have the virus without having symptoms. However, for many people, there are indeed symptoms. When a person gets the illness, there are a variety of possible early presentations, most common is a fever, body aches, and fatigue, accompanied by a dry cough. Fewer people also have gastrointestinal issues as well, including nausea and diarrhea. But most common is the cough, fever, and fatigue. Of course, we've also heard of different issues, including rashes, especially in younger individuals, and rarer but important immunologic presentation in some children and adolescents. The impact of these symptoms varies in different people, from quite mild to much, much more. While anyone can be very troubled by COVID-19, at greatest risk are older individuals, those with obesity, and those with other important medical conditions. In terms of symptoms, what we are most concerned about and what particularly raises a red flag is increasing shortness of breath. If symptoms are mild, then home care with ordinary medicines such as Tylenol are fine, With shortness of breath, formal medical care needs to be consulted right away. If you're in doubt, you should always call your doctor for advice. Now, in taking care at home, there have been some earlier talk about avoiding such medicines as ibuprofen, Advil, motoring medicines like this, but this recommendation has come into question, and it's not clear if there's any traditional risk of this kind of common medication such as ibuprofen. I will just review some of the important safety measures that have been circulating. Staying at home as much as possible is really good advice to limit the spread and reduce personal risk. Dr. Martin will address the increased use of televisits by your oncology team, which is directed at keeping patients safe while maintaining good anti-cancer care. All of us are now aware of the term social distancing, be at least six feet or two meters from others and in many states and countries about isolating at home. This is all very good strategy for everyone, particularly for those with cancer. Of course, there are differences in different jurisdictions about opening up and we need to be very careful about these and uh, extra cautious as well. Studies have shown that the virus can live for many hours on many surfaces and even for days on plastic and stainless steel. But we should not lose sight of the fact that person to person respiratory spread is the main risk of spreading this infection, as the CDC has recently emphasized. Indeed, cleaning surfaces with potent chemicals such as bleach or strong alcohol or products like glycol remains important. Good hand washing with soap and water is excellent, frequently and for at least 20 seconds and after any possible contact. The soap need not be so-called antibacterial, so just regular soap and follow the 20-second thorough hand washing. If soap and water is not available, the alcohol hand hand sanitizers with about 70% alcohol are a good measure. In cleaning surfaces and in using the alcohol hand sanitizers, these substances need to be dry. But It is clear that masks can be very helpful. The typical surgical mask or the cloth, perhaps homemade mask, generally protects others against the person who's wearing it. So it has a role, especially if everyone close by is wearing one. It can be quite valuable. But it's not too helpful for the individual wearing it, but it's good public health policy and helps protect others, most importantly, those at greatest risk. So for our patients and family members at particular risk, including those with cancer and those who may be undergoing treatment, we have to insist that those nearby must wear masks, period. Now, members of the same household who are healthy and are following these careful recommendations need not wear masks with each other. Please recall, after handling such a mask, and if you are reusing the mask, you must wash your hands as they might have been exposed to the outside of the mask by touching it, and the outside of the mask could be contaminated. It would then be good to sanitize the mask or wash it if it's a cloth mask, or leave it alone for a few days. The so-called N95 masks, which are more protective for the individual, are quite good, but they remain still in somewhat short supply. They, too, need to be left alone for a few days or sanitized if reused, and the hand washing remains important with these as well. Remember, in normal times, with adequate supplies, none of these would be re- reused. We must avoid others who have the infection. This is not easy to do in the home, but it's a priority. Dr. Schwartzberg will discuss this further, and we would all advise thinking about a plan for your own home as to how to handle the situation if a member of the household begins to show symptoms or is known to have the infection. This includes the person with cancer and any others in the home. Dr. Stabler will discuss several aspects of care for those with the COVID-19 illness. Reliable information is so important at this time. In fact, that's why we are all involved in this program. We hope that cancer care will continue to be a useful and reliable resource for you. But of course, there are many different voices that we hear all the time. Here's my opinion on the sources of information. Let's consider that there are two types of information. First, local requirements and ordinances, and second, medical and scientific information. For the first, local ordinances, one must listen carefully to governmental officials, such as your Department of Health, your mayor or governor. This information varies by country, state, or province or municipality, and is quite important. For scientific information, please be guided by your health care team and contact them for any questions, which is always true in caring for individuals with cancer and their families. But I would not regard politicians as necessarily being reliable for scientific information. These folks rarely have scientific or medical training or The CDC website's a good resource, resource, and I think that all of us in medicine listen carefully when Dr. Anthony Fauci speaks. He has a long and tested record, is as smart as it comes, is as well as being unbiased. And if the answer is not known, he face off. We are all looking for improvement in the entire pandemic situation, of course. The best approach to this would be having a high-quality vaccine. Just as we've had for polio, which eliminated that fearful disease from most of the world, and before that for smallpox, which actually totally eliminated that disease, I know that we will all listen with interest as Dr. Wong brings us up to date on what he sees as the future for that vaccine and how that might be uh, particularly how that might particularly affect patient dealing with cancer. All the basic recommendations that I just mentioned really do make sense. My colleagues in the following presentation will discuss several key topics and recommendations with practical advice for individuals and families with cancer. Dr. Weiner will also discuss how to help children and teens in the family who are undergoing a particularly difficult and confusing time in their lives. Later in the program, Ms. Chetalian will discuss about resources for getting the latest information. Our panel will be presenting a lot of information. And we recognize that you may have many questions. We'll be happy to discuss more of these all, uh, and related issues when we have the question period later in the program. I'll now turn the program back to Carolyn Messner, and we'll look forward to the presentations by my colleagues. Carolyn?
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Groh. That was wonderful. You really set the stage for the entire program. Wonderful presentation and a wonderful presentation. One can expect what they're going to, what's going to happen next. So our next speaker is Dr. Peter Martin. Dr. Martin is Chief of the FOMA Program, Associate Professor of Medicine, Weill Cornell Medicine, Associate Attending Physician, New York Presbyterian Hospital. And Dr. Martin will be addressing understanding how COVID-19 may influence your cancer treatments the important role of telehealth appointments with your health care team, what they are, and their role in reducing exposure to COVID-19. And it's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Martin.
4: Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner and Dr. Grala, for that uh, wonderful introduction and, and summary of, of where we stand today. Uh, as Dr. Mesner mentioned, my goal is to uh, explain our understanding of how COVID-19 may influence cancer treatments and the role of telehealth in that.
2: So, I think in order
4: to understand how COVID-19 influences cancer treatment, ideally we would be in a place where we could understand exactly how cancer influences COVID-19. I think everybody can imagine that um, uh, those of us in medicine spend a significant proportion of our time now discussing that very fact that somebody calls up and says, I'm anxious about um, what will happen if I get COVID-19 and uh, is this going to be okay for me? Is this going to be bad news for me? And uh, Dr. um, uh, Schwartzberg and Dr. Wong are going to go over uh, in more detail um, what people can expect with COVID-19 and where to find information on that. But I will uh, quickly say that early on, uh, data from China suggested that uh, people with cancer could have a harder time if they were uh, to, to be diagnosed with COVID-19. Since then, the data have become uh, significantly more nuanced. Uh, nonetheless, um, much of our um, approach to COVID-19 has been based on the assumption that we want to do everything we can to protect uh, people with cancer and caregivers. From developing COVID-19 infections and so a big part of that has essentially been to focus on the social distancing that Dr. Grawler mentioned. So when we discuss cancer treatment we have to discuss it in the in the context of how we can do that with respect to social distancing. Always when we're talking about cancer treatment we're talking about what the goal of that therapy is. And and usually when we're talking about uh, those goals, there are multiple different options that might allow us to achieve one of those goals. When we talk about those options, we try to choose right now the option that is most consistent with a social distancing goal. So, uh, for example, um, many uh, anti-cancer treatments exist in the inpatient setting but because uh, until recently hospitals were largely uh, overwhelmed with COVID patients, many of us um, migrated a lot of our inpatient therapies to outpatient therapy. Now, that may change in the future as uh, there are fewer and fewer people admitted in the hospitals with COVID-19, but currently that still seems to be a reasonable goal. Similarly, a lot of our uh, practice has been to try to Um, facilitate movement through oncology clinics, and um, that has been uh, accomplished largely by segregating and separating people uh, with COVID-19 infection from those without COVID-19 infection or from those who might be suspected of having a COVID-19 infection. Similarly, we've been transitioning away from standard long infusions to shorter subcutaneous therapies, and when possible, we've been transitioning largely to oral therapies, which then allows people to continue to receive anti-cancer therapy with minimal time in or around the clinic. And I think that, interestingly, these interventions have been remarkably successful to the point where we have seen very little person-to-person spread of COVID-19 in any oncology clinics really around the country, which I think is a testament to the uh, fact that oncologists took this very seriously, but also a testament to the fact that people with cancer are very good at listening to instructions and following instructions in this this area. One of the things that facilitated all of this uh, movement was the telemedicine. So telemedicine has been around for a long time, but it was really adopted rapidly over the past three months. So, for example, at Cornell, where I work, there was a 10,000-fold increase in use of telemedicine from February to April without a real significant change in the total number of patient visits. So, telemedicine has significantly improved our ability to care for people with cancer while minimizing interactions between people and also minimizing uh, the needs for staffing, staff travel, um, uh, which in New York is often happening via public transportation. So this whole thing has really facilitated uh, social distancing. So what are visits, uh, video visits specifically? Well, they can often be used as an initial consultation. In fact, many of us are now seeing more of our patients initially through video visit and then determining whether or not that person needs to be seen uh, in person uh, at a later point in time. A significant, a that can be used for follow-up visits, and this is particularly helpful when we're talking about treatment planning, education, or counseling uh, of people to explain what, um, what may be uh, a recent lab result or a recent, uh, a recent uh, scan result uh, or what a new treatment might entail. Um, now, it's also important to know that uh, these telemedicine visits can happen over a variety of different technologies. Um, typically, when possible, uh, we try to do this via video because I think uh, although we can't have face-to-face, uh, in-person uh, exchange of information, there definitely is a lot more information that's exchanged when two people can see each other and look at each other. Uh, but That said, not everybody, probably in the range of 10 to 20% of people, either are not able to uh, do video visits or don't have the technology to do it or or can't figure it out. And so telephone visits are an acceptable uh, strategy. Um, Additionally, I think um, it's important to note that uh, sometimes video visits are not a good idea. So in their sense, in the the times when somebody needs active therapy or when they need a physical exam, we do still bring them into the clinic. And interestingly, that can raise quite a bit of uh, fear occasionally because people have been uh, conditioned to believe that hospitals are full of coronavirus. And that simply is becoming less and less true. And so I do want to make the point that if, if your doctor says you know i'd really like to see you in person please know that hospitals doctors visits clinics have done a very good job of minimizing risk of spread of coronavirus and so it's usually is quite safe to do that obviously keeping in mind all of the factors that dr gala mentioned social distancing masks and hand hygiene during travel to and from clinics so uh, i'll quickly just mention again there is a need for hardware, software in a suitable setting. I think that Dr. Schwartzberg may go over those things in more detail. Know that if you have any challenges with any of those things, every office is available to help with all of that. Uh, hospitals have tech support. officers have the ability to uh, walk you through all of the steps to make telemedicine uh, work. Uh, the other thing is just the this is something that we're all going to be dealing with. Uh, you know, I think, as Dr. Bala mentioned, let's not be over anxious to do social distancing. We're going to be dealing with this for a long time. Uh, telemedicine is going to be around with us for a long time. We've done surveys of our patients and have found that 90% of people do uh, appreciate the ability to do telemedicine, but they don't want to do it all the time. So I think in the future we're going to see a mix of telemedicine and in-person visits. And we should all get used to uh, the idea of telemedicine in one form or another because we know that it will help to reduce the spread of coronavirus, but it may, in many other ways, may make our lives a little bit better.
1: I think that's uh, for my part, and I'll pass it back to Dr. Oh, Thank you so much, Dr. Martin. That was so informative and really outstanding in terms of a focus on really um, the treatments that, that have Change actually, and then also the the use of telehealth appointments, and to really make it make everyone understand that if you don't have whatever the technology is that you need, if you have a phone, that offices really will work with you. So that's a very important takeaway for everyone. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Lee Schwartzberg. Dr. Schwartzberg is Executive Director, West Cancer Center, Chief Division of Hematology Oncology. Professor of Medicine at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. And Dr. Schwartzberg will be addressing guidelines to follow if a person living with cancer, a family member, partner, or caregiver is diagnosed with COVID-19. How to prepare for your telemedicine telehealth appointments with your health care team, including questions about treatment side effects. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Schwartzberg.
5: Thank you so much, Carolyn, and uh, thank you to all my colleagues who are participating in this extremely important call. I'm going to follow up on what Dr. Grala and Dr. Martin talked about in a little bit more detail. I'm going to focus first on what to do if you have COVID-19 or if you're caring for someone who has suspected or documented COVID-19. If you're sick with COVID-19 or you think you might have it, the most important advice is to stay home except to get medical care. You want to stay home because you don't want to expose other people uh, to the potential illness and you want to reduce the activity for yourself because as Dr. Rala mentioned, one of the most important symptoms we see with COVID-19 in many people is extreme fatigue, and that can vary. Now, in general, the symptoms last for roughly 10 to 14 days, but we've seen, uh, in many cases, uh, two phases to the illness where people are symptomatic in the first week and then it tapers off, and then sometimes in the second week they develop additional symptoms or recurrence of the symptoms. So you need to be careful and you need to pace yourself if you have it or think you have it. Most important thing is to take care of yourself. Avoid excessive activity. Monitor yourself for a shortness of breath or other symptoms. As Dr. Grala said, it's fine to take over-the-counter medicines like acetaminophen if you develop fever, which is one of the common symptoms, the original uh, sentinel symptom, if you will, for this disease. And if you live in an urban area, if you do go out to try to avoid public transportation at home it's critical to separate yourselves from other people as much as possible and depends on your living situation but if you can stay in a separate room away from the rest of your family or your caregiver or your your partner and use a separate bathroom if available that would be the best you do not have to wear a cloth face covering if you're in the room by yourself but when you are uh, interacting with other family members, caregivers, and partners, etc., and if it's unavoidable, it would be very important for both you and uh, the caregiver uh, to wear a mask to avoid cross-infection. When you're home with suspected or known COVID-19, you should monitor your symptoms very carefully. Looking at temperature, and it would not be a bad idea to make sure you have a thermometer at home, which, although we're in short supply earlier in the pandemic, uh, I believe are now available at most drugstores, and to use this and monitor your symptoms uh, with fever checks a couple times a day. I would recommend, although it's not in the CDC guidelines, which is where most of my comments are coming from, that you can pick up what's called a pulse oximeter, which is a very uh, simple machine that you put over your fingertip and it reads out the oxygen level in your blood. The reason that's important is that most of the patients who have been admitted to the hospital have had uh, a lack of oxygen in their blood. Sometimes the, and then require uh, more intensive therapy including ICU uh, admission and helping, having machines help them breathe. That's a small percentage of people with this disease. It's very important to highlight. But you want to try to get ahead of that. So if you have the disease, checking your oxygen level a couple of times a day with a pulse oximeter, which is painless, and uh, a relatively inexpensive device to buy would be worth doing. And, of course, you should stay in touch with your healthcare care provider and get directives directly from them. So if you do have any of the emergency warning signs, like chest pain that's uh, persistent or your lips get blue if you don't have a pulse oximeter or you have increased trouble breathing, you should call your health care provider immediately. If possible, you want to avoid an emergency situation. You should clean your hands often, just as uh, was sent by both of my colleagues. That's very important to avoid transmitting or keeping the virus going within yourself or to other members of the um, household. And you should not share household items. So you should have your own uh, um, toiletries and uh, your own utensils and so forth. And all the high-touch surfaces in your house should be cleaned, typically by the caregiver, every day. Once... Um, you are getting better, Uh, there are specific uh, recommendations for what to do with your own health. And when it's safe to be around people, other people, once you've had COVID-19, you might have to get tested to see if you still have COVID-19. And typically, many providers and many uh, workplaces and other institutions will require two negative tests in a row after you have symptoms. And two negative tests mean the nasal swab that Dr. Grawlam mentioned, and those are simple to perform, and typically the results are available one to three days after the sample is collected, although that might vary in a particular community depending on the number of tests that are being done and how many laboratories there are uh, to process those tests. The same is true if you think you had COVID-19 and had symptoms consistent with COVID-19 but were unable to get a test. In those cases, you would want to have resolution of uh, the symptoms at least three days with no fever and at least ten days since uh, you uh, symptoms first appeared. Now, turning to caregivers, the, the main thing that caregivers will do in a situation where another individual in the home will have, uh, has COVID-19 is to provide the support and cover their basic needs, providing them with medication, making sure they're well hydrated, doing the grocery shopping, the cooking, cleaning, and so forth. This is important because of the fatigue that's associated with it. Um, the caregiver or partner can also be a reliable source to see if the patient is changing in terms of their symptomatology, which sometimes may not be uh, self-awareness. And so uh, the caregiver can help in making a determination whether to call for emergency attention or to call the primary care physician. Limiting contact if you are a caregiver with the uh, person with suspected or known COVID-19 is really critical. And also important, you don't want to have... Uh, if there is uh, a choice of caregiver to help directly take care of the person with the disease, it should be someone who is not at higher risk for uh, developing a worse case of COVID-19. For example, someone who is already immunosuppressed, or if, there, uh, if the caregiver also has cancer, that would be the person, if possible, to not be the primary caregiver in that space. The space should not be shared. You should eat in a separate room or area from the patient or a person with suspected COVID-19, and not share personal items. Again, as far as the corp, cloth the face cover, uh, that needs to be done when you're in your home, only when you're in within six feet or within the same room for with the person who has COVID-19 suspected or known. And the caregiver should also clean your hands often, and disinfect surfaces around the house, especially shed surfaces, as much as possible. So I think that using these types of recommendations, you can feel comfortable being a caregiver, that you're reducing your risk of developing COVID-19 from a person who has suspected or known disease. And at the same time, and most importantly, take care, take good care, of the person who is uh, facing these symptoms and the illness and trying to reduce the possibility of uh, an emergency admission or an admission at all to the hospital. I'll just turn in the uh, next uh, minute or two and just discuss a bit more on um, telehealth, uh, which Dr. Martin covered so nicely. And this relates to a couple of points about telehealth. First of all, you might be wondering, why didn't we use telehealth before COVID-19? I would agree that the vast majority of patients who have been surveyed and the vast majority of physicians who have been surveyed find that telehealth is a very important solution to many of the visits and can help people who either live far away from the physician are in uh, their house because of illness or because they don't want to be exposed potentially to COVID-19 or even live in an urban area, but there's a long uh, time interval taking public transportation to visit their physician or institution. So the reason is that the the laws regarding uh, reimbursement were quite complicated. And um, Medicare and other private payers did not necessarily excuse me, cover uh, the cost of a telehealth visit. That all changed over literally overnight in early March. And now every payer, any insurance that you have, and Medicare all cover telehealth visits. We expect this to continue because of the tremendous value that has been engendered by telehealth, as you heard from Dr. Martin, although the circumstances might change a little uh, after a while. But for right now, every visit is covered. You do need uh, a certain minimum amount of uh, technology, Uh, although a telephone under certain circumstances can be used for telehealth visits. In general, they're considered uh, video visits, which means face-to-face over a um, over some kind of technology. And that technology can be FaceTime, it can be using a tablet, a smartphone, a computer, whatever you have, and there are uh, multiple platforms that have now been adapted to use that. And uh, my personal experience has been very easy for our patients to uh, utilize the telehealth uh, platform, and we find those visits um, very rewarding. I personally actually find that there's, um, that there's less anxiety around a telehealth visit for the patients, and there's more of a, uh, of a collegial kind of uh, atmosphere, because patients typically are in their own home, and it seems more relaxed in terms of uh, being able to discuss things with patients under that setting. So, for many circumstances, telehealth is extremely valuable. Just the same way that you prepare for an in-person visit, you should prepare for a telehealth visit. It's always a good idea when you're visiting your provider to have a list of questions and concerns so that you don't have to search your memory uh, while hearing information from the provider, and it can get quite complex. Have your list of questions ready to ask your provider when you sign in for the telehealth visit. That makes it a very rewarding visit. I will say, although you cannot examine a patient directly over telehealth, just by having the visual component, certain things can be examined. For example, skin, for rash, or swelling, or uh, strength in, uh, in arms and legs, or uh, speech patterns. So a fair amount of the physical exam not all of it, but a fair amount, can be accomplished on a telehealth visit. If you need a comprehensive physical exam, which is very important for cancer patients periodically, that should be done in person. To sum up, telehealth is here to stay. It will evolve over time. It will be useful in many different circumstances. And uh, you should be prepared for a telehealth visit in the same way as you would for a face-to-face visit. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Schwarzberg. That was truly really outstanding. And so helpful about the preparation for the visit. That's really important to, to take it quite as seriously as any other visit with your health care team to have your questions ready and available. So that's terrific. Thank you. So you can fo- focus what your concerns are. And our next speaker is Dr. Michael Wong. Dr. Wong is Professor of Medicine, cutaneous Cancers, Medical Oncology, is Executive Director, Integration and Program Development, Cancer Network, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Wong is going to address how might vaccine work, progress and outlook, and where to find reliable information regarding COVID-19. It's really my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong.
6: Thank you, Dr. Metler, and it's a real pleasure and honor to be able to participate in this program, and would like to build upon the broad shoulders of all the speakers that came before me and speak about a topic which has gotten a lot of press recently, and the reason for that is uh, if we have a vaccine that is able to incur immunity, then it would change everything about what we have uh, have talked about already and how we approach this disease. So next several minutes, I just want to talk about uh, what is that vaccine, how does it work, and what is the outlook? the, The production of vaccine depends on inducing immunity in that person. And what is immunity? Immunity is that thing in our body that that tells our body what belongs to us and what does not belong to us. And it's part of a system. So you can't point to one thing in your body which does immunity. It's part of a system that includes uh, lymphocytes, B cells, T cells, your bone marrow, your spleen, your liver, so on and so forth. So as you can see, it's a very complicated system, and rightly so because it is the, the protection that allows us to survive in this world is to protect us against all the things that can attack us. And one of the reasons why this, particular, this COVID-19 thing that's written really uh, gotten attraction has is uh, because of the early recognition that this was a novel, as Dr. Graves said, a novel vaccine, never seen before in a while, so therefore we have no exposure to it and therefore no immunity. And, and therefore a vaccine job is a is to trigger within our immune system a long-term protection, a recognition that this doesn't belong to us. So how does that work? How do we do that? Um, uh, You know, the vaccines uh, up to this date involves putting something in our body to make our body recognize that this particular thing does not belong to us. How do you do that? Where early on in, the, uh, in, the, in this pandemic, uh, the researchers in China re- uh, recognizing something which happened in Wuhan uh, managed to isolate the virus. And they call it coronavirus because under a special type of microscope, you can see that this little virus, this little particle, has things that come out in little protrusions. They're called spikes. And uh, under microscope, these spikes, because of the way the processing is, gives it a halo a corona of the virus. And when you look at this under uh, a microscope, at high magnification, it's one of those aha moments. You look at it and say, ah, it's a coronavirus. And then comes an identification of how, you know, whether it's one of the other ones, like SARS or MERS, or whether it's a novel new one, which in this case it was. So here we are today. So why do I go through this thing about spice and the rest of it? Because part of the uh, way we induce immunity is to make our body recognizes as a being different. And in the past, people have done this in multitudes of ways. One is to actually get the, the virus particle proper and either attenuate, attenuate it, weaken it, or denatured in some way, shape, or form, and then inject into our body. Our body recognizing this is abnormal would then mount an immune response to it. It says this stuff doesn't belong here. Let's get rid of it. And in doing this immune response business, you uh, you develop some immunity to it. Now, all those bits and pieces—recognition, uh, the attack of your uh, body immune system against what was injected, the ability of your body to recognize that—those are different components of the immunity of immunity, which we'll talk but a bit later, but all which are important. Because the Chinese researchers recognized uh, that this was novel, they sequenced it. All the things in our body, which are biologic, come from, uh, are made up of proteins. Those proteins are encoded by DNA, which then makes RNA, which makes protein. And that one phrase, DNA to RNA to protein, is the subject of a graduate course in molecular biology. But you know it to be the pattern of things. So once they recognized what this was, you you could make pieces of protein, or perhaps something like pieces of the spike protein. Why the spike? Because we believe that's the part that allows the virus particle to attach to your body and attack it. So therefore, if you had immunity against the spike, you'd be immune against infection. So that was the thinking. You could also do things like make DNA or RNA, which then are put into uh, little delivery vehicles and injected into people, either intravenously or onto the skin. And the DNA and RNA would then make the protein, and the protein would then be recognized by being abnormal, and then you get immunity to it. If it sounds complicated, the real answer is, is that it is. So all of those things are under play. Last week's Wall Street Journal uh, points out that there are over 100 companies working seriously on this one topic, scattered in 16 countries, the top three being the U.S., China, and Canada. So lots of activity happening, and every time you open up a a newspaper or you open up something uh, like a journal or the Wall Street Journal or a business journal, this is a top thing that's happening. It's a major endeavor going on right now today in the world of medicine and science. So what happens? You have these vaccines. How do you know that it works or not? Well, the first thing is that you, you, go, you undergo testing in test tubes and in, in what we call uh, viable biologic models, be it uh, mice or monkeys or whatever that would give us a rendition, a way of reading out whether it's uh, able to work. And, and the way you know this is that by, by putting the vaccine into these model systems that you get out, read out things that are indicative of uh, of, of infection, of uh, sorry, immunity against infection. Dr. Bralla mentions the word antibodies. These are things your body makes. When you have an immune reaction against something, your body will make an antibody against that, so therefore you can measure it. So these are things we call surrogate markers. In other words, they are markers that tell us that we are on our way to immunity. It's not quite Community, but, you know, that's on the path. So this is a rapid way of getting that information. So the way you test these things is the first thing you have to, uh, after you pass the stage of test tubes and animal testing, is you start looking at in people. You ask questions like, is this safe, right? So you, 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 you have a population of people in a clinical trial where you assess different doses of this because you're trying to get to the right dose, and you're trying to assess whether it has any side effects. Uh, and then once you have that, then you start testing it in people who are uh, who are at risk or, or whatever you set up a clinical trial to do this and this is a good time to step back and say and to ask the question, what is a clinical trial? It's a situation set up in which we're trying to to uh, test something in a, uh, and in this case uh, test something a biologic material. It is a uh, a way of doing things in a systematic way, almost through a recipe cookbook. Why? Because these trials, which can, which can involve uh, uh, hundreds of people and sometimes tens of thousands of people, have to be done consistently and, method- and, and in a way in which the method can be reproduced, so that way you can get the answer that you need. If all of us treated patients in our own way, we would never get to the answer. So a cookbook trial is a way of getting it done in a way that allows us to get to the answer. So you have these situations where you're testing it in people to understand whether you have these surrogate markers, these antibodies, these other markers that show up that tell us this indeed is on the way to immunity. Why? Because the goal is not to have to test blood and find out surrogate markers, the goal is to have long term immunity against this and against this, this, this virus. And this is why it takes time. Because it's not just that, it work, that it's safe, not just that you can get these circuit markers, but you have at some point in time to show that, that, that this particular vaccine that you're testing can protect you against COVID-19, not just for now, but in a long-term, perhaps permanent way. This is, so again, Dr. Geller mentioned two diseases, smallpox and polio. Smallpox, we believe, is eradicated uh, to our best knowledge uh, from the world. That's because of the fact that you can get this lifelong immunity and just eradicated. it. It's, we believe is no longer part of a, a real health concern, although there's vigilance against that. And polio, again, has been reduced to something which is uh, almost historical, right, although we have to maintain vigilance against, against the disease. So that, that's the goal. And then I'm going to end in the next uh, few seconds by answering the question, how do you get to know more about this? And, again, Dr. onto in, in his statement, you know, uh, uh, tells you sort of a hierarchy, almost like an onion, in the sense that what in, a, in the innermost ring is yourself and your physician, someone that you know, you trust, uh, and who can, can help translate some of the information um, uh, to you, and remember, healthcare associations and societies are pushing out information to that individual provider. Next comes your local governmental uh, uh, agencies or governmental um, elected governmental officials, uh, locally, because I know this is not just in Houston, Texas, where I am, but in every community, it's a little bit different. And finally, sort of large institutions that have a world outlook, such as central. Uh, the Center for Disease Control, CDC, uh, which has a website and can provide you that large overview. So I have, in you know, the last few minutes or several minutes given you this, this sort of very sort of uh, superficial overlook on vaccines, but our, we are hopeful to it. Uh, my own personal opinion that we're going to get there, uh, uh, and that, uh, uh, you know, this will have huge uh, implications for all of us. Thank you very much for giving me this time to speak to you. And back to you, uh, Dr. Metner.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wong. That was really very informative, and um, I think really um, explaining the complexity of the vaccine and also and, and where to get reliable information. It's really important for people to know that it's so important, so thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Stacy Stadler. Dr. Stadler is Program Director, Palliative Medicine Fellowship, Clinical Director, Supportive Care, Inpatient Services, Associate Attending, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Stabler will be discussing the role of supportive and palliative care when you or a loved one is diagnosed with COVID-19, talking with the health care team about your advanced directives, including health care proxy. It's really my pleasure to turn this over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sapler.
0: Thank you so much. As a palliative care specialist, I am thrilled to have this opportunity to speak about my field. The key concepts are applicable in the setting of cancer, as well as this current COVID-19 pandemic. Whether someone uses the term palliative care or supportive care, What they are referring to is an approach to care that aims to relieve distress, exchange information, personalize the care plan, support caregivers, and enhance continuity. So palliative or supportive care really is for patients with serious and complex illness. It can be provided by your oncology team or it can be provided by specialists within an interdisciplinary consultation team, and that typically includes a mix of doctors, nurses, social workers, and chaplains. Palliative care is supported by the major oncology organizations as a critical component of comprehensive cancer care. And in the last 10 years, several high-quality studies have shown that early palliative care for patients with advanced cancer improves their quality of life, decreases anxiety and depression, and even appears to lengthen survival. Palliative care is available at any stage of cancer because it's based on need and not prognosis, and it can be given alongside curative and life-prolonging treatments. I want to be sure to dispel the common misconception that hospice and palliative care are one and the same. Hospice is a specific subtype of palliative care. It's a Medicare benefit that's available to terminally ill patients with an expected prognosis of six months or less. This service delivery system provides palliative care focused on symptom management and quality of life by bringing equipment and health care professionals to a patient and family typically in their home, but sometimes in hospice units and long-term care facilities. So, back to the broader concept of palliative care, it's really about adding more resources, not taking things away. As a palliative care provider, my goal is to help people live as best they can in the face of serious illness, such as cancer, or more recently, even COVID-19. Palliative care embraces a shared decision making model where the doctor shares his or her expert knowledge on treatment options, and the patient shares his or her values and goals, where of course they are the experts. This exchange of information is what enables a patient and clinical team to jointly develop a more personalized plan. Sometimes treatment decisions are fairly straightforward, Your doctor is recommending a treatment that benefits the majority of patients with very few side effects or risks. But other times, treatment decisions are more complex, particularly when there is uncertainty that the benefits will outweigh the toxicities or risks of a potential treatment. So in these kinds of situations, situations, patient values and preferences should play a large role Palliative care clinicians are skilled at eliciting patient and family goals and in facilitating discussions about relative benefits and burdens of a proposed intervention. People in my field like to ask questions like, what does living well mean to you at this time? What do you hope for most? What do do I need to know about you as a person to give you the best care possible? We are also interested in exploring patient preferences, should he or she become more ill in the future? In many ways, the current COVID pandemic has made these kinds of discussions about advanced care planning even more important, given the risk of respiratory failure, which may require a patient or family to face difficult decisions about the use of breathing supports, like ventilators, there are several ways that you can help your care team know your wishes. Many people complete um, living wills or re- sometimes referred to as advanced directives as part of their estate planning with a lawyer. If you have one, make sure to share a copy with your health care providers. Some states have special forms called MOLST or POLST forms. These are specific orders for life sustaining treatments and are completed in a detailed discussion with your clinician. But because it's impossible to predict all the possible medical situations you might face in the future, I think it is most helpful to complete a healthcare proxy form. This is a way to designate a person that you would want to direct medical decisions if you are unable to speak for yourself. This person is referred to as your healthcare agent. If you have not designated a health care agent, then the medical team will look to your next of kin, typically first turning to yourself, then adults, children, then parents, and siblings, and on down the line. Although conversations about potential end-of-life decisions can be uncomfortable and emotional, taking the opportunity to tell your health care agent and your family about your preferences can remove a huge burden from them. And of course, ongoing conversations with your medical team about prognosis, treatment options, and your preferences are the best way to ensure the care you receive is aligned with your values. These are key conversations that should be normalized and not be limited to meetings with palliative care specialists. But I will say that support from a palliative care team may be particularly helpful when there is conflict or high complexity. I truly appreciate the opportunity that Cancer Care has provided me to highlight some of the benefits of palliative and supportive care, and to encourage all patients to discuss advanced care planning with their families and their medical teams. i welcome any questions during the panel session. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Stabler. That was really so important to include in this program today, and in many of our programs, actually, um, um, and it's just uh, excellent information and information. Uh, I have a few questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Um, Our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischmann. Dr. Fleischmann is former founding director of Cancer Support Services, Continuing Cancer Centers of New York, and he's author and researcher in oncology. Dr. Fleischmann will be discussing coping with self-quarantine fatigue and also self-care and stress management suggestions. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischmann.
2: Yes, thank you, Dr. Messer, and thank you for all of the other uh, callers uh, in this uh, very important webinar at Cancer Care Connect, as well as all our speakers. Um, This is uh, somewhat new to all of us, and all of us uh, providers have been learning and listening as we go along to try to find out what's the best way to manage through um, a health crisis that uh, has taken us pretty much all back. So, um, our patients, whether they're in the middle of treatment, but usually after treatment, whether it's just recently stopped chemotherapy or radiation therapy, or have been off treatment for a long time, all tell us how tired they are of quarantine and um, being at home. And uh, it seems like this kind of quarantine fatigue is very real, and we're all experiencing it. Um, I would pretty much guess that all the providers on this call also feel that the um, pandemic has upended their regular schedule and their usual way of doing things. And that is uh, the kind of thing that makes us all a bit on the edge and uh, a bit tired. Um, Patients are telling us, apart from being a little bit frightened, not knowing what's going to happen in the future, and being tired, uh, that they're worried. Um, some patients will admit that uh they have not kept up their usual good health maintenance activities, and especially those patients coming right out of chemotherapy or radiation therapy um have not been able to get back to the good health maintenance um functions that actually will help people recover better and faster from their chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Um, Many people tell us that they're less active than usual. Um, Those of us who are used to um, having formal workouts find that we're not able to do that because the facilities are closed and have had to find other things to do in their place in order to stay limber and um, stress and strengthen muscles as well as get good aerobic um, exercise. Um, Many people, clear across the board, say that their sleep, even if they have the chance to have an increased amount of sleep, is not as satisfying and is not as restorative. Um, These are all the kinds of things that we're experiencing and our patients are experiencing as well. So without uh, real good guidance uh, for how to uh, recover from uh, an epidemic such as like the one we are living now, I think, we need to go back to our basics. And uh, when thinking about this and dealing with this common question with patients and families over the last few months, um, it seems that we have to really go back to basics. And um, recovering from uh, uh, whether you've had COVID-19 yourself or someone in your family, or just um, fearful of getting it, or staying at home and doing uh, the, the proper things that the public health folks have asked us to do. Social distancing, washing our hands, using hand sanitizers, wearing a mask when being outside. Things like the basics are really the most important thing here. So apart from the special things that we've heard of this call so far, I think we need to go back to the what I like to think of as the three-legged stool approach that in order to recover from cancer and cancer treatment, we need to think about balancing our activity level, um, having good, healthy, nutritious food, and restorative rest and sleep. And it seems like it's nowhere more applicable than the situation we're in now. So, um, as I mentioned before, when activity is uh, been changed, uh, we have to do all kinds of uh alternate things, and that would include walking outside. Um, We have heard from the public health officials that being outside um, is safer than being in an indoor environment where it's easier to pass droplets from person to person. So walking outside in good, comfortable shoes, sneakers that support your body is very important. You don't want to get injured while you're trying to uh, regain some of your health. Um, so a number of personal trainers have also have offered guidance about this. But um, starting starting below your level of endurance and increasing a little bit at a time every few days seems to be a general guideline. That's good if you're able to do so. Um, many uh, authors have also uh, described housework as being aerobic um we can all attest to that when we've had when we do housework and clean up and it can be part of a routine of of fast movement and stretching and lifting, uh, and those are the kinds of things that are part of a basic workout. So the second part of the – the second leg on the three-legged stool, good food, um, is a bit of a challenge sometimes when we're also told we should be going to the supermarkets uh, minimally, uh, buying fresh fruit and vegetables, finding things available, uh, storing them are all uh, much – more uh, challenging during these times, but going back to the basics of having plant-based diets with um, a good selection of fresh fruits and vegetables when available, having our proteins from low-fat meats, chicken, fish, as well as nuts and um, beans, um, back again to the very basic things, make sense here, if it's at all possible, based upon where you live and your circumstances and what is available where you live. Um, there have been a number of newspaper articles about the resurgence in home baking, uh, be it breads or cakes and... Again, that can be part of a balanced diet, but in uh, proper amounts and at the proper frequencies. The restorative rest and sleep can be a bit more uh, challenging to us, especially if you have more time to sleep. The sleep quality needs to be very good. Uh, some of us have uh, taken to back to taking naps in the day con, but please remember that a nap, uh, cannot be too long because it's kind of like having permanent jet lag. You go into deep sleep and then have to wake up at a time that you're not used to and that can interfere with the night sleep. Generally, I've been taught that a nap of somewhere around 30 minutes to 45 minutes is ideal. And um, once you get to 45 to 60 minutes, you can be deep enough sleep to interrupt your night sleep, which is not the purpose. Um, so uh, a good nap enjoyable reading, Um, the kinds of things that help you rest can be very helpful in getting some rest even though you're not sleeping. So when we speak about restorative sleep and rest, a number of things can be helpful. Um, Relaxation exercises. Um, Some people find a warm bath or shower helpful. Others don't. That's more of a personal preference. Progressive relaxation exercises. Um, Sitting back, closing your eyes, thinking of yourself favorite place to be in where you feel sort of the most calm um, and trying to imagine that you're there, all can be helpful in bringing on restorative um, rest. In addition, um, proper breathing techniques, stretching techniques, all can be helpful. One of the other things that um, I think all of us have found is that our usual schedules are offended. And the importance of having a routine and a schedule and keeping ourselves on target uh, can also be very, very helpful. Um, the future uh, for our country and for the world, uh, about how quickly and how easily we will recover from the uh, pandemic is still uncertain. Uh, as of now, uh, a number of pharmaceutical companies are working on vaccines um, and possible treatments that can reduce the, um, the, the severity of COVID-19 illness. So none of us know what's going to happen. But thinking about the future and thinking about what life will be like after this can also be very helpful in, um, in, in seeing a path out uh, of it for you and your family. The other thing that uh, people have mentioned um, during the crisis is really helping others. That being on um, uh, 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 being in, in the past a long period of time and being asked to go out tends to focus, help us focus on ourselves and our families. But helping someone else, particularly those in need of some um, shopping or, or other or other activities that they living that that they cannot do because they're also self-quarantining, can be of uh, great help to yourself in rounding out uh, the way you think about where you've been the last few months and how we're going to see the future. So I hope back to the basics is really the way to go, and I'll turn this back to Dr. Merckin.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really excellent, and really lots of things people can think about doing that really are health-promoting and really very um, good in managing this, this time. So thank you so much. Thanks. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Roy Weiner. Uh, Dr. Wiener is co-director of behavioral health care. Director of Psychosocial Support and Research Program, Pediatric Oncology Branch, Center for Cancer Research, National Cancer Institute, National Institutes of Health. And Dr. Wiener is going to be addressing helping children and teens during this pandemic and guidelines in talking with children and teens and parents about COVID-19. It's really my great pleasure to transfer one program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wiener.
0: Thank you, Dr. Mesa. I appreciate that. There is no doubt that life has changed for all of us. By now, you may have found really effective ways to help your children cope, and still, you might be struggling to limit the meltdowns that come with uncertainty, fear, boredom, or even changes in schedule. Or struggling with children who appear irritable or fatigued despite sleep, less motivated to engage in usual or family activities. If so, know this is not unique to you. So I'm going to start with providing seven tips to consider based on the many questions and concerns that families at the National Cancer Institute have shared with me. And they all start with the letter C, which makes them easy to remember. And then to briefly provide some guidelines for talking to children about COVID-19. First is COM. Children take their cues from the adults in their life If who are constantly checking the news or watching the floors or they hear us talking about the train of terribles that can come from COVID hospitalizations. Our children will sense this anxiety and may react by like becoming more anxious. So when you feel your own emotions are being hijacked by fear, try to find a way to calm down, whatever works for you. Perhaps try to find a time each day for at least one healthy, stress reproducing activity. I of which you've heard from Dr. Fleischmann. And continuity, which is also that Consistency and structure are especially common during times of uncertainty and high stress. Children, especially those who tend to be anxious, benefit from knowing what is going to happen and when. Right. Some specific tips include breaking up these long and structured periods during the day into more structured activity, and remember to add meal times into the schedule. Often children are more likely to be looking for food and not necessarily the more healthy food who out the day when they're not in school. You review a schedule with your family often and this should include your own medical care and keep the schedule in a place for all to see. And as people either living with or impacted by cancer in your family, you're all skilled in developing a plan B, sometimes a plan C or a plan D. Work collaboratively on these, on creating these plans and adjust them as needed. And remember lots of praise for things that go well and can go a long way, especially during times of such togetherness. And a sense of humor is always essential. Next is control. For so much that's unknown and outside of our control right now, it's it's time to shift our energy and focus to what we do know and what parents can control. Review a what-if, then-what scenario with your children. This could be very helpful so that you have a concrete plan if something on your child's what if list does occur. Help a child to create their own self-care or toolbox with activities and items they can use when they're feeling stressed or overwhelmed, things the child can do to help feel in control, along with hand-washing and physical distancing. Depending on the child's age, this can include activities to help them de-stress. I like activities that engage the senses. Think about five things you can see. One things you could hear, three things you could touch, two things you could smell, one thing you could taste. Helping your child focus on his or her senses can really anchor your child in the present and help them to relax in the moment. And as always, model positive behavior, illustrating activities that help keep you calm or grounded. Next is connection. Social support is a protection for good mental health, so reducing isolation is key finding ways as a family to be creative about new ways to socially interact with friends and family members. For example, families might like to have breakfast with grandparents, or teens may join a friend or families to have virtual dinners, ice cream socials, using FaceTime or another social media platform. Others may prefer to connect by watching Netflix series with family, and teens may enjoy digital games like to play with others. What's most important is that we need to be more intentional, about our communication and connections now. Next is channeling creativity as humans, we have a natural instinct to express ourselves. Think about what expressive outlets you can provide at home. Some families have created comforting messages and designs using colorful chalk. Families can play music together for the first time. I've heard families planting a garden together and looking forward to seeing new vegetable grow. This would also provide a sense of control, so you might not need to go to the grocery store as often. There are free art classes online. The American Children's Book Illustrator and artist Carson Ellis started a quarantine art club on Instagram with daily assignments for people who are at home. Next is managing cancer care. Children often worry about their parents, especially when a parent is undergoing cancer treatment. Inform your child of any changes to your cancer treatment, even about treatments being postponed or administered in a different form. Assure your child that the doctors are doing their best to care for you and what the plan may be if you do get sick. Be honest with the child or children about the impact COVID may have on your health, including additional risks and the need for the family to be safe. With this, they may worry that if they go outside that they risk exposing you to the virus and yet be desperate for some normalcy as well. Here's when the child can go back to their toolbox of coping skills practicing the things they could do to keep you safe. And maybe even including ways to foster a sense of connect- connection with physical distance through smiles, air hugs, scared hands, or high fives, even with high-fiving with shoe holes, but being creative. And last, self-compassion. This is real. It's okay to feel anxious, scared, or angry right now. Accepting and validating these feelings is important. We are all having them. Letting your children know that it's okay to stick with their emotions rather than fighting them is a lesson they will use well beyond this pandemic. We are all building our tolerance for uncomfortable feelings and learning we can coexist with them. And Anxiety, we know, can be exhausting. But so while we all modify our definition of a good day, be kind to yourself when things don't go exactly as you hoped. We all need to try to eliminate that word should from our vocabulary. It's just too judgmental and just reinforces the negative of what we're not doing, and it's not at all motivating. Let's celebrate what we are doing, big or small, like being here today. I'm now just going to very briefly switch gears to address some guidelines for talking to children and teens about COVID-19. And the first is an approach conversations calmly to reassure children and teens that they are safe and all their feelings are valid. Think about identifying a talking location in advance, a place that's quiet, free of distractions, and other people. Try to have a regular time to talk. I'm a big advocate for family week, weekly family meetings to talk about things that are going to happen in the next week. Mostly look for times when your child may be more open whenever possible, to try to avoid talking to children about issues that may be stri- stressful right before bedtime, persisted, worsen fears or worries. And don't wait for your child to ask questions in order to ask them about COVID-19, but do respect their decision if they don't want to talk. If words are hard for your child, you can allow them to express themselves through other means like art or play. And you might want to just start with what things have you heard about COVID and where have you heard this from? As you've heard, it's important we know where our children are getting their information from. And next is honesty. While it's a natural tendency to wanna protect our children from information that could be stressful, there's an abundance of data that speaks to the importance of being honest. Using words that reflect your child's development, age, and maturity. Being honest helps them feel prepared, allows them to feel included, heard, and supported. Helps them understand what's happening. Don't be surprised if your child's concerns are different than your your own. And though hard, try and listen more than you speak and normalize things like it's okay to feel that way and it sounds like you're still worried. If you ask a one-word, you know, ask questions that can be answered with a yes or no, you're generally just going to get that one-word answer. Things like what, how, and why, what worries you most right now will get you the most information about what's happening to them. And research conducted after previous disasters shows that parents and others are often surprised by how much a child was affected. One study showed that children didn't tell their parents or other adults their true feelings because they knew how upset or stressed the adults already were, and they didn't want to upset them further. So as noted earlier, check your own stress level before talking with your child. If you're overly worried or fearful, your child will pick up on these emotions, probably more than what it is that you have to tell them and last, consider creative activities to help them understand the pandemic. Similar to other natural disasters like hurricanes, floods, or earthquakes, pandemics mark a defining moment and memories in the lives of those affected that may not be immediately understood for children. Think about creating a COVID-19 timeline or major events surrounding the pandemic, starting with when and where the pandemic first began, when you first began sheltering in place, when you first went out, Depending on the child's age, this can get more sophisticated. So in summary, like you and your family are living through a significant time in human history. Future generations will read about COVID-19 pandemic in their history books. Think about what you want your family's story to be when this is over. Think about pandemic positives. Can you name anything your family has done that you might not have done or experienced the COVID-19 didn't enter your lives? Maybe you completed a large puzzle, participated in family Zoom exercise or yoga classes together. Maybe families gotten to know each other better or coped with uncertainty better, or learned new recipes. Maybe you connected with people you wouldn't have connected with if it wasn't for this pandemic. So perhaps together you can create your own COVID-19 storybook. And if you haven't done something you wanted to do favorably to remember later, it's not too late to create your own story. And the last is finding opportunities for gratitude can be enormously helpful. Modeling a simple today I'm thankful for is a positive coping strategy that children can take with them well past this pandemic. Gratitude is one of the best antidotes to fear. So with that, back to you, Dr. Medved, and thank you for listening.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lina. That was outstanding, really, and so much for parents and children to be aware of and so much for parents to learn from this and for all of us on this call, everyone. Um, So thank you, parents, grandparents, everyone to learn. Um, This is a wonderful, just wonderful presentation. Thank you. And um, our next presenter is Lauren Chitalian. Lara is an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. She's a women and cancers, a women and children's program coordinator at Cancer Care. And Ms. Italian will be addressing tips to manage the practical, emotional, and financial stresses related to cancer in the context of COVID-19 and Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs for people living with and coping with cancer. My pleasure to introduce Program Over to Ms. Italian.
0: Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include case management, counseling, and support groups over the phone, online and in person, educational workshops, publications, and financial during this pandemic, Cancer Care has created several resources relevant to COVID-19. On Cancer Care's website, there is a COVID-19 landing page that includes recorded educational workshops, publications, a podcast mini-series, Cancer Care's blog, and advocacy efforts. This information can be very useful in navigating many presenting concerns related to COVID-19. Physical, social, and emotional challenges may arise when diagnosed with cancer. Throughout one's treatment, as well as post-treatment, it can be beneficial to determine ways to approach challenges that may surface. There may be several recent challenges that individuals have experienced in regards to COVID-19. One possible challenge is social distancing. It can be very difficult to manage emotions related to social distancing on a daily basis. Social distancing can cause amplified feelings of isolation and loneliness and continues to be an adjustment. If your support system feels distant, see if there may be an option to connect over the phone or even online if possible to continue to engage with others continue to connect with people who have common interests or who may be going through a similar experience as you. There are many virtual meeting programs where people can engage with one another. If you do not have access to the internet or are unable to correspond with others virtually, consider speaking over the phone. Conference calls can be a communal space for several people to join in. Please remember, you are not alone. You may find that others are feeling similarly to you during this time, and it is very possible they're looking for someone to connect with as well. Individuals may choose to supplement existing social networks by joining a support group or engaging in counseling. Many hospitals, treatment centers, and nonprofit organizations offer supportive services. Joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others, going through a similar experience, who may understand what you may encounter throughout diagnosis and treatment. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others, gather and provide support, as well as obtain information. A support group may help to reduce feelings of loneliness and help to increase feelings of hope and empowerment. Working one-on-one with an oncology social worker through individual counseling can offer a space to express one's feelings, emotions, and concerns. A social worker can offer support and guidance, as well as help navigate difficult decision-making or communication with loved ones, among other challenges specific to a diagnosis. This may include adjusting to and finding new ways of coping throughout treatment. That is tailored to an individual. During this time, you may notice that certain activities or techniques that you have put in place to help cope through diagnosis and treatment could be paused or altered. This may be a time of finding new hobbies within your home, becoming creative, and even possibly learning something new. It may also be helpful to focus on strengthening self-care practices, as Dr. Fleischman mentioned, exploring mind-body techniques that may interest you and could help you become grounded during this time. This could include yoga meditation, mindfulness, listening to music, or spiritual practices. If possible and safe to do so, connect with nature by going on a hike or taking a walk around your neighborhood while adhering to social distancing. This may vary person to person, so continue to discover what works for you. Individuals may also experience practical and financial concerns throughout one's treatment. As I mentioned earlier, Cancer Care offers limited financial assistance for cancer-related costs, such as transportation and child care, and our oncology social workers can help you find resources. Cancer Care also now provides free national case management services to patients, post-treatment survivors, and caregivers affected by cancer. We offer a short-term, strengths based approach to case management, where the social worker will work with the client in connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. As we have listened to our panel of experts today, we recognize how COVID-19 can specifically affect an individual diagnosed with cancer, as well as loved ones and caregivers. This is a challenging and uncertain time for many people. Continue to find ways to connect with others, focus on your physical, emotional, and mental health, and consider alternative ways of seeking joy and comfort. If you are interested in learning more about the support services Cancer Care offers, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hopeline at one 800 813 You'll be able to speak to one of our oncology social workers and explore the ways in which to and potential resources. At Cancer Care, our oncology social workers are aware of the financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact that a cancer diagnosis can have on an individual and their loved ones. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to be a part of this very helpful and informative program today. I will now turn our program back to Dr. Mebner. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Chatalian. That was outstanding, a wonderful uh, presentation. And now we do have time for questions. I'm going to ask uh, Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take. Um, we welcome to take all of your questions. We're going to take a few of your questions um, before we close the program. So, uh, Crystal.
0: Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star and then one.
1: And I have a question here um, uh, from one of our online participants. What the, and this would be for Dr. um, Grawler, What precautions should I take when when I receive my cancer treatment at the hospital?
3: Well, I think really uh, that you shouldn't worry too much about that. It's the same precautions that you normally would have taken, plus the distancing and the masks and the good hand wash. So it's... uh, your treatment, ask your oncology nurse, your medical oncologist, if there are any special precautions you need to take, but I would say that then it's just, uh, in addition, what would be good, uh, normal uh, masking and hand washing uh, as as usual. That that would be my my way of looking at it, and again, please check with your oncology nurse uh, as well.
1: Thank you. And a question for Dr. Martin. Um, I've been ordering my things online now. Should I wipe down packages and the contents inside?
4: Yeah, good, good question that we've heard um, heard uh, many times. Uh, Dr. Vala mentioned that the CDC has increasingly uh, suggested that most um, uh, spread of the SARS-CoV-2 virus is likely to be through respiratory um uh aerosols or, or droplets as opposed to uh, through contacts. Um, that said, uh I think it is still important to use uh regular hand hygiene as Dr. Browler mentioned. Uh the question of how long things live on surfaces, uh I think is still uh questionable what to do when you get a package. I think you know, the key there, as long as your hands are clean, it doesn't matter what's on the outside of the package, right? So if you uh, open that package and then wash your hands, then you can take out whatever is inside the package without worrying about it. So as long as we're washing our hands frequently in between these steps, then I don't think we have to be too... Uh, careful about wiping down the boxes that they they come in We just have to wash our hands and, and not touch our face between uh, these steps. Excellent.
1: And a question, thank you for Dr. Schwarzberg, if someone is over age 70 with no other underlying conditions, what is their risk?
5: Well, the issue of risk uh, remains one that's still in flux. We do know that in the earlier experience, Um, older individuals had a higher chance of being hospitalized and a higher mortality, and that seems to hold true as well, even in people who are uh, otherwise healthy. So individuals over 70 may not have quite as robust immune systems as younger individuals. So in general, uh, people over 65 are still being advised to take um, somewhat more precautions. And I think this is particularly relevant in this era where the country is opening up, but is opening up uh, very variably depending on the community you live in, on the rate of testing, on the rate of new infections, and on uh, the usage of uh, hospital uh, resources and whether or not they're approaching critical usage, as we saw unfortunately in New York in March and April and has thankfully uh, resolved now. So I think that common sense is very important. I think um, people that are older or even people who have any uh, compromise of their immune system potentially should take a bit more precautions. I think being in uh, indoors and uh, poorly ventilated spaces, one should think twice about that. On the other hand, as many of our speakers have talked about, getting exercise for otherwise uh, healthy people, being out in the fresh air, or particularly when one has to isolate or work from home, these are uh, important aspects of our work. So common sense uh, and be careful and a bit more careful if you're older. Dr. Matthew,
6: Thank you, Dr. Walker. Yes. Can I, can I say a few words? Oh, please. Uh, yeah, just to put it in the context of cancer and and age 70 and risk, I think this uh, we just had a very large cancer conference uh, ending just at the beginning of June where some of these presentations were given. And to look at the highest risk individuals, which from the original uh, uh, examination of the patients in China suggested that perhaps individual with thoracic oncology at high risk and, and, and anyone else, even within that very high risk group, it, uh, the details truly matter. Uh, and so this is something that I would encourage all the patients individually to, to speak to their oncologists about, but there were some treatments that, uh, that did not confer any increased risk over patients that did not have COVID-19. So, uh, so to, to, to give it a little bit of, uh, of, uh, of, of context, uh, this is one where the type of treatment you're getting, uh, the comorbidities to walk in with, so on and so forth, to really understand that question requires a, a specific question to the oncologist. But I want well, these individuals knowing that, uh, uh, that there are many, many situations in oncology in which the risk to that oncology patient, should they get COVID-19, are no higher than someone who uh, is
3: similar to them without the COVID-19.
1: Excellent. And I actually, um, I asked three speakers to actually just say something about um, what they'd like people to take away from what they said. I'm going to start with Dr. Fleischman, then Dr. Stapler, and then Dr. Wiener, just so we basically want people to have a sense of a, a really quick takeaway from each of them, because I think they're um, important. So
2: Dr. Fleischmann do you want to go first, just a quick takeaway? Sure. Uh, I would just keep in mind that these are hard times for all of us, that the information keeps changing, and that going back to the basics of good self-care is what we need now more than ever.
1: Thank you. And Dr. Stabler? Yeah, I
0: I think that in this current um, the challenges around COVID, I think the additional support that a palliative care team can provide patients and their families is that much more important. So I encourage people to ask or reach out for that.
1: Excellent.
0: Thank you. And Dr. Wiener, do you want to, Ashley? Yeah, I say ditto, ditto. And then Be Kind to Yourself. And truthfully, people who have been impacted with cancer have learned many wonderful coping skills throughout this time, more so than people who haven't had to face other kind of challenges before. So think about those skills that you've already been using and implement them now and reach out to others when you feel like you need some additional support.
1: Oh, and actually, um, there are two last online questions that just came in. One um, for... um, uh, this one would be for Dr. Martin. Other than convenience, what are the advantages of oral oncolytics versus infusion chemotherapy?
4: Uh, great question. Uh, sometimes there are certain agents that are only available orally and not intravenously, um, so that's obviously an advantage. Sometimes um, oral agent, or sometimes certain anti-cancer drugs are available in multiple formulations, and those formulations may have uh, differing uh, effectiveness or side effect profiles, uh, so that's, there are potential advantages on, on both sides of the equation. It really is a highly individualized uh, question that's relevant to the type of cancer, the specific therapy, and the uh, person and all of their um, everything that comes with that person, their medical history and their preferences. So it's a great question for the oncologist uh, whoever your oncologist is to ask that question specifically.
1: And um, for this one, it's for Dr. Schwartzberg. I'm a a metastatic breast cancer patient in current treatment. My husband is frontline essential worker, law enforcement. He tested negative in April, um, which that was his last test. How often should he get a COVID test? just in a general way, if you could
5: address this? I think, uh, obviously, if if, um, the caregiver is taking precautions and is in a higher-risk environment, uh, that certainly helps. Um, The COVID tests are available now uh, pretty universally, so uh, it would not be unreasonable to do uh, routine testing. Um, It would also be interesting in that particular circumstance for someone who is, uh, in a high risk situation and potentially exposed, particularly when they have a family member who is at higher risk, like in this case, to consider an antibody test. An antibody test, uh, as you heard earlier, um, was still early in the uh, in understanding antibodies for COVID, but that would at least show whether or not there was uh, previous exposure, uh, particularly in that period since April. And uh, possibly, although this remains still uncertain, if there is a type of antibody called IgG, that means that there's been exposure that's uh, somewhat remote. Uh, that's antibody that comes up later after the disease is already uh, processed and is no longer infectious typically. So um, I think either testing for the, using the swab to see the presence of the uh, virus or and or uh, antibody testing would be a potential opportunity in this kind of setting where you want to minimize risk to the patient with cancer.
1: Excellent. I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I also want to thank our participants um, for asking such great online questions. Really terrific questions as well. Now we, I know we have many more questions in queue, and so I just want to thank our speakers and I want to thank, of course, all of all of you participants is amazing. So for those of you who asked a question, we still want you to take your question back to treating healthcare team. And for those of you who are listening and learn things, we want you to take that information back to healthcare team because they are, of course, the best resource for you in terms of they know everything about you and they actually are the very best people to kind of answer your questions and, and concerns. However, we also do know that you like to go to credible resources um that um, to get information. Uh, perhaps it gives greater, you feel like you're more informed when you ask your, your team questions. And so we do recommend, um, certainly, um, the Centers for Disease Control, the National Cancer Institute. And actually, at the end of this program, within about two days, you'll be getting an evaluation form. And the evaluation form will not just be an evaluation form, although we do like to have your feedback, certainly, um, about the program, but it also will include resources to you, websites and resources, and some of the collaborating groups that we work with as well, who would have would be great places to go to. Um, when I say a uh, credible resource, it needs to be, the, the resource needs to be up to date in terms of you now. It has to be really, we talked about this program occurring on on June 15, 2020. So the information you, you need to access about this topic really needs to be right up front. It has to be very much present. Um, it also needs to be from a site that's credible. So we often think about resources that are that are very carefully vetting their systems by experts, many of the experts that we speak on who spoke on this program today, experts like them from major cancer centers. Um, and major institutions. So, with that being said, um, so for those of you who still have questions, take them back to your healthcare team. If you asked a question, take it back. If you had a question, of course, ask your healthcare team. And for those of you who wish to pursue further services from cancer care, and I think Mr. Um, Tulane did a wonderful presentation on all the services you can access from cancer care, please contact us. Um, you can call our 800 number or visit our website. Um, we definitely, our oncology social work staff are here to help you and provide all sorts of resources for you, both practical financial assistance as well as case management services and help you connect with the services that you need. So I want to thank you all for your participation today and most importantly as we conclude, I really don't want any one of you to feel alone. I do recognize, of course, that um, you all, with social distancing, people feel even more alone than ever before. So it's normal to feel alone to some extent. but it's a normal feeling to have. But I also want you to know that you are connected to a lot of resources, and please take advantage of those resources because they can be very, very helpful to you in coping. So I want to thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank
0: you.